Go ahead and turn with me to Judges chapter 16, if you would, again tonight. Judges chapter 16. I have a lot to cover, uh, so I'll get right with it. Samson was a chosen and designated as the Lord's servant before he ever came into the world. He was to be Israel's deliverer, judge, before he was formed in his mother's womb. And in this and in many other ways, Samson is a picture and type of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've already seen that. It seems that his trouble always took place when he set his eyes on a woman. And in Judges chapter 16, we find Samson in trouble once again because of his love for a woman. The Philistines knew that Samson loved this woman and her name was Delilah, as you well know. And they came to her in verse 5 and had her to entice Samson to find out where his great strength came from. And Samson toyed with her. He lied to her. But in the end, he gave in to her. And in verse 17, we read, he told her all his heart. And he said unto her, There hath not come a razor upon mine head, for I have been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. If I be shaven, then my strength will go from me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, he'd been truthful with her, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up this once, for he has showed me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up unto her and brought money in their hand. And she made him, Samson, sleep upon her knees. And she called for a man, and she caused him to shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to afflict him, and his strength went from him. And she said, the Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awoke out of his sleep. And he said, I will go out as at other times before and shake myself. Now look at this last line in verse 20. And he wist not, he knew not, that the Lord was departed from him. Now in our study tonight, we'll see many pictures of the Gospel. This is the Gospel according to Judges chapter 16. And we'll see things concerning ourselves and the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we've already said, Samson in many ways pictures the Lord Jesus, but in many ways He pictures us also. So first I'd have you notice there in verse 20, how Samson pictures you and I. Samson was very presumptuous. So are we. We're, we're a presumptuous people. Look the, again, the last line in verse 20, and he, Samson, wist not, that word means knew not, that the Lord was departed from him. Samson presumed that he still had the presence of God. Now, as we've said many times, it was not his hair, it was not Samson's hair that provided his strength. It was the presence of God. It was the Spirit of God when the Spirit of God came upon him. 
And uh, Samson presumed that he still had the presence of God. And he presumed that he still had his strength. He presumed that he still had God's presence. But the Lord was departed from him. Samson wist not. We often wist not. We often presume many things that we should not. How presumptuous we are by nature. But thankfully, our God remembers that we're dust. Aren't you thankful that the Lord remembers that we're dust? He knows our frame. He knows how frail we are. And He doesn't forsake us when we become presumptuous. You know, we take every breath presumptuously. We just do. We, uh, we presume that our breathing will continue. But the next one could be our last. So, we must pray with David, keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Lord, don't allow me to be presumptuous. Peter was presumptuous. He said, Lord, all the others may forsake you, but not me. I'll never, ever forsake you. What presumption? Just hours later, with cursing, he denied the Lord Jesus three times. David was presumptuous. A man after God's own heart. When he numbered the people of Israel, in pride, he imagined that he had done some great thing to make Israel mighty and great in number. He counted, had the people counted. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, God had warned him through Joab not to do so, but he did so anyway. And in judgment, God made him to choose between three different punishments. Seven years of famine, three months of fleeing from their enemies, or three days of pestilence. And David said, I'm in a great strait. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for His mercies are great. And let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord chose for him, and He sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even until the time appointed. And there died 70,000 men. David wist not. The apostles were sent by the Lord into a storm. You remember that? When He came walking to them on the water? And He did so to prove them. May we always remember that when the Lord proves us, tries us, tests us, it's never to prove to us our strength or that we have any. Never. He's proving to us our weakness our inability and our total dependence on Him. And this night, the apostles wist not. When the Lord fed the multitude with the uh, loaves and the fishes, He asked Philip, you remember that in John chapter 6? He said, when shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this He, our Lord, said to prove Philip. For, the, for He Himself knew what He'd do. The Lord knew what He was going to do. The Lord knew there was going to be a lad there that day with those, those fish and those loaves and He was going to feed 5,000 with it. But the Lord um, did this to prove Philip. Uh, and He would uh, expose Philip's inability to fill this need. That's why the Lord allows 
uh, us in our presumption to fall. Philip wished not. When the Lord puts our faith to the test, He's exposing our weakness, our inability and our total dependence on Him. Every time. How many times do we presume until we learn? I'm still adding and I'm still counting. How about you? Will we ever learn? Samson wist not that the Lord had departed from him. Did you know that the Greek word for wist is yada? You've heard that word. People say yada, yada, yada. Well, that's, that's simple. what they're saying is, I know, I know, I know. I, I know, I got this. <laughs> no need to bother me with the details. I know, I know, I know. The word presumption is defined as an ideal taken to be true, although it's not known for sure. Assume, presume. We live in a presumptuous world. <laughs> That's the problem with religion today. Men and women are presumptuous. Uh, they think they're entitled to grace. They think God owes it to them to save them. They wish not. They yada, yada, yada. And uh, they don't know the truth. God is indebted to no one. God doesn't know any of us a thing. Nothing but death, hell, and eternal judgment. That's what we deserve and that's what God owes us. Nothing else. And what Samson is doing here, he's doing in the power of his own flesh. He wished not, he knew not that the Lord had departed from him. Well, Brother David, I thought one saved, always saved. I thought the Lord never forsook His people. I thought that He would never leave them nor forsake them. I thought His love was everlasting and never ending. It is. It is. But sometimes He departs for a season. Sometimes He departs His people for a season. And He does so to teach us. <laughs> He does so to accomplish His will in us. And that was the case with Samson. The Lord allowed His presumption. And in the end, Samson, because of His presumption, did exactly what God had purposed him to do. You remember we were told early in, in the story of Samson that God had raised him up. To, to destroy the Philistines. And that's exactly what he'd wind up doing, as we'll see. In Luke chapter 22, the Lord told Peter, He said, Simon, Simon, He said, Behold, Satan hath desired to sift you as wheat. Remember that. He said, But I prayed that your faith fail not. And then He said, When thou art converted... Strengthen thy brethren. Now, the Lord didn't prevent Satan from sifting him as wheat. That's what he went on after that to deny the Lord three times. He never promised that he would prevent Satan from sifting him. He promised to pray that Peter's faith fell him not. And Peter's faith didn't fail him. And Peter's faith in the end did just what the, the Lord 
meant for, for, for him to do. He told us, he said, Peter, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And that's exactly what Peter did. I want you to keep your place here in Judges and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, if you would. I want you to see this. 1 Peter chapter 1, keep your place in Judges 16. And here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, look at this with me. Give you a moment to get there. Here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, Peter writes, To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Well, who sent those temptations? <laughs> the Lord did. And He sent them on purpose. He sent them for a reason. What is that reason, Peter? Verse 7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now, this is not to our honor and to our glory, but to the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we cannot accomplish spiritual things through the arm of the flesh. It's impossible. To think that we can is to say yada, yada, yada. I know, I know, I know now. I got this. I got this. Look, look at verse 8 here in, uh, in 1 Peter 1. Whom having not seen, ye love, and whom though now you see him not, yet believe me, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Oh, there's, there, may, there may be a departure from the Lord for a season, but He's going to accomplish His purpose. And if you're one of His, it's going to be for your good and it's going to be for His glory. Now back in Judges chapter 16, I want you to look at verse 21. But the Philistines took him, that being Samson, and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with fetters of brass and he did grind in the prison house. And I was, my point here is how glorious is it that we have a God that is blind to our sin? That's the picture that we have here. Samson pictures the Lord Jesus who causes God to be blind to our sin in His going to the cross of Calvary. That's what this bringing down of the temple of Dagon is all about. That's what the destruction of the Philistines is, is all about. Uh, it's about conquering death. It's about finishing the work. It's about putting away sin. It's about defeating sin and Satan. Getting the victory over death in the grave. That's what this is about. 
Now, I want you to see this. Look at Isaiah. Hold, again, hold your place in Judges. And look at Isaiah chapter 42. <clears throat> Verse 18. Here we read in verse 18, Isaiah 42, Hear ye deaf, and look ye blind, that you may see. Now look at this, verse 19. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf is my messenger that I sent. That's talking about Christ. <clears throat> Who is blind is he that is perfect, and blind is the Lord's servant. Seeing many things, but thou observest not, opening the ears, but he heareth not. And the Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. How can, uh, how can God Almighty not see something? <laughs> I think you know the answer. If you and I are to be saved, our sins got to be removed from us. The Scripture says, as far as the east is from the west. That's an infinite distance. Infinite distance. You know, if you follow the orbit of the earth, you can go east and then you start orbiting around and you, you, you go back to the west because you're going in a circle. But in the vastness of this universe that's just infinite, uh, you can go east infinitely and you can go west infinitely and the two are never meet. Now that is how far our sin has been removed from us. Isn't that something? Never to meet again. Never to meet again. God remembers our sin no more because they are no more. <laughs> God cannot see something that's no longer there. God cannot see what does not exist. Our sins are completely covered. Our sins are put completely away. Far as east is from the west. How? By the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Job said, My transgression is sealed up in a bag, and thou sowest up mine iniquity. Friends, this is God's bag that's sealed. And it's Christ who sold it shut. God said, I, even I, am He that blotteth out thy transgression for my own name's sake. God did it for Himself and will not remember thy sins. And when God says something, He says what He means, He means what He says. I, even I, I'm the one that blotteth out your sin and I do it for my own sake, my own glory, my own honor, my own praise. And I will not remember thy sins. <clears throat> and every believer can say, Thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption for thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. If my sins are cast behind God's back, well, if He turns around, they're still in His back. They're, they're still at His back. And He cannot see them. They're always at His back. That's why God can't see them. He cast them there. 
The prophet Micah said this, He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou will cast all their sins. All sins, plural, into the depths of the sea. Micah 7.19. I like what John Gill wrote on that verse. He said, though our sin can be seen with the eye of om omniscience and taken notice of by the eye of providence, yet they never will be held with the eye of God's avenging justice that's been satisfied by Christ. Now that's just, that's the confidence that we can have that our sin's been put away. The Pharisees came to the Lord Jesus in contempt. And they said, uh, you say that we're the blind leaders of the blind. And the Lord said, if you were blind, you, you should have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. In other words, if, if you were blind, you wouldn't be so aggravated. Your sin would be pardoned and taken away from you. But you say that you see. You think yourselves to be wise and all-knowing and you don't have any need of illumination. Therefore, your heart's hardened and you, your sin remains. And what the Pharisees were saying was yada, yada, yada. Yeah, we know, we know, we know. <laughs> we got this. We don't need you. We, we, we can... We can save ourselves. We, we're doing quite all right on our own. We don't need you. And it's just the opposite for the needy sinner. Lord, I need you. I must have you. Only you can put away my sin. I can't put away any sin. Lord, you, you must give us ears to hear. You've got to, Lord, give us eyes to see. Lord, you must become blind to our sin. Now again, back in Judges, again verse 21, Judges 16. <clears throat> but the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with fetters of brass. And he did grind in the prison house. Where it says here, the Philistines took him and put out his eyes my marginal Bible says bored out his eyes. Friends, our God is blind to our sin. Our sin is bored out of his sight. Our sins are bore by the shoulders of his beloved son. And our sins are bore on Calvary's tree. All the sins of all the elect throughout all time were put on Christ to bear and be bored out upon the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And the words there put out means bored, thrust, pierced. How appropriate. Put out, Christ bore the stripes that healed us. Put out, Christ... Head, hands, and feet were pierced. Put out, thrust was the spear into Christ's side. 
And it was all to put our sin out of God's sight. They brought Samson down to Gaza. Immediately, I think I thought of the verse in 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world. He came down. He left His throne on high. He came down into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. You see, it was our sin and the payment, the full payment of our sin that brought Christ in the world. Verse 21 says, They bound Samson with fetters of brass. In the Scriptures, brass represents a few things, actually. First, it represents the presumption and the obstinacy of our sin. Brass also represents the character and righteous judgment of God. And brass also represents the glory and majesty of God. Now in the Christ of Calvary's cross, all these things met together in perfect harmony. It was there that mercy and truth met together and righteousness and peace kissed each other. Psalm 85.10 You see, our sin met face to face with God's righteousness. No man can see God and live, and yet on the cross of Calvary, our sin met face to face with God's righteousness. Our depravity met face to face with His majesty. Christ became guilty and we were made righteous. For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Notice also, and Samson did grind in the prison house. Now in the prison house of sin, you and I have attempted to work out our own salvation trying to produce grain for bread. But it was Christ, our strong man, who grinds the wheat for us. <laughs> Christ is our bread of life that came down from heaven. He has trodden the winepress alone and of the people there was none with Him. He did this for us. He did it alone. We couldn't do it for ourselves. He came to set the prisoner free and it was the fetters of our sin that held Christ to Calvary's cross. Now, we'll come back to verse 22 in a moment, but I want you to look at verse 23. <clears throat> then the lords of the Philistines gathered them together for to offer a great sacrifice unto Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. For they said, Our God hath delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hand. Now, it's interesting, uh, it was to me, that the word Dagon means fish. He was the Philistines' fish god. Uh, he had the head and the hands of a man, but he had the body and the tail of a fish. And uh, he was the Philistines' god. And what a picture Dagon is of the little g-god of this world's religion. This unbelieving world is said to practice science. You've heard that. 
You know, I believe, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. Well, the word science by definition means knowledge. And yet the science that men and women hold to today is not knowledge, it's simply a theory. <laughs> For example, the theory of evolution. Men believe that they crawled out of the ocean like a fish and we grew the head in the hands of a man and now we believe that we can think for ourselves and we can do with our own hands everything for ourselves. And yada, yada, yada. Men presumptuously endeavor to do just that. It's to deny God's creation both natural and spiritual. It's to reject God's salvation. It's not to submit to His authority. It's the same with the evolution of salvation. There's such a thing as that. God has said to do His part and we must do our part. And then salvation somehow involves into life everlasting. It's no different than tying the head of a man to the tail of a fish. And making a God out of it. That's exactly what they did. And that's what the world still does. It's a God of their imagination. It's no God at all. There's no evolution in salvation. The work's finished. And adding to it actually takes away from it. The God of Dagon is very much alive today. This religious world... And the religious world in the days of our Lord, like in the days of the Philistines, in Samson's day, said, Our God hath delivered the strong man, our enemy, into our hands. I don't think so. Now, back to verse 22. It says there that howbeit the hair of his, Samson's head, began to grow again after he was shaven. And if you have, again, a marginal Bible, that word after there means as before it was shaven. The grinding of this wheel that Samson did in the prison house this and him being made sport of had been going on for a while. Some time has elapsed here. It's said that the human hair grows about three-eighths of an inch to a half inch per month. And as... And by now, his hair has grown back as it was before it was shaven. And we've said many times, even yet tonight, or even tonight, that the length of Samson's hair wasn't the cause of his strength. It was the presence of the Lord that was. So what is the significance of the regrowth of Samson's hair here? Why does the Scripture mention it? Well, it pictures the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Samson's hair represents his glory. <laughs> Samson was shaved of his hair, his glory, and Christ on Calvary was stripped of his, stripped of his glory. But his glory, his hair, so to speak, has grown back. The Lord Jesus was crucified and killed. The Lord Jesus was buried. But the Lord Jesus resurrected. He rose again. And that's the proof that He and His glory is restored. It's here that we see that the Lord was no longer departed from Samson 
And the father no longer had forsaken his son. God accepted the work that he did and he raised him from the dead. That's the proof that his glory is restored. And he raised him from the dead. And God accepted us in him. And he raised us from the dead with him. And we're restored to glory. Not because of anything we did. Because of what Christ did for us. Christ was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Romans 5, 1 and 2. And this is our only hope. We have no other hope. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Now look at verse 24 here in Judges 16. And when the people saw him, Samson, they praised their God, and they said, Our God hath delivered into our hands our enemy and the destroyer of our country, which slew many of us. And it came to pass when their hearts were merry, that they called, or that they said, call for Samson, that he may make us sport. And they called for Samson out of the prison house. And he made them sport. And they set him between the pillars. That's what they did to the Lord Jesus. They made sport of him. You know, that word sport means just what you would think. It means merriment. It means entertainment. They made entertainment out of Samson and they did the same to the Lord Jesus. Sports are meant for entertainment. And if you watched that game last night, UK game, uh, I texted Larry afterwards. He said, wasn't that fun? Yeah, it's entertainment. It's fun, isn't it? The religious leaders in our Lord's day made Christ to be their entertainment. They, they mashed that crown of thorns down on His head and mockingly praised Him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. It was just sport. It was entertainment to them. They struck Him with their fist in the face and said, Prophesy and tell us who hits you. Nothing but sport and merriment and entertainment they, that they did these things. That word sport also means to laugh and mock and to play. They, they laughed at Him. They scorned Him. They made sport of Him. They said, if, if, if thou be the Christ, save yourself. They said, He saved others. He cannot save Himself. They're making sport of Him as He's grinding out the bread of life in the prison house. Why did they hate Samson's soul? The last part of verse 24 tells us, they said he's the destroyer of our country. He slew many of us. Why did they hate the Lord Jesus so much? It was the same reason. You know, when you remember when the Lord raised Lazarus from the dead? He raised him from the dead and the 
the religious leaders, the high priest and all his cohorts got together and they said, we've got to do something about this Jesus. We've got to do something about Him. Uh, the Romans are going to come and they're going to take away our place in our nation. We're going to lose our jobs. We're going to lose our high positions. We're going to lose the freedom that we have as Jews. They didn't have any freedom. They just thought they did. Men hate the Christ of glory for the same reason today. Why? Because He destroys them. He kills them. How so, David? He strips them of their righteousness. He pronounces them dead in trespasses and sin. He kills them. There's nothing they can do about it. They don't like it. We've got to do something about this Jesus. We're going to lose what we have. And yet God's people are glad to lose it. I'm not going to put any trust or confidence in my righteousness. Yes, Lord, I am dead in trespasses and sin. I need life. And this is the very thing that we as His people love. We don't want anything to do with our salvation, do we? Only He can save to the uttermost those that come to God by Him, seeing that He ever liveth to make intercession for me. And that's what Samson did. Verse 26, And Samson said unto the lad that held him by the hand, Suffer me that I may fill the pillars whereupon the house standeth, that I may lean upon them. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there, and there were upon the roof about 3,000 men and women that beheld while Samson made sport. As I don't know what they did, but he was being entertainment for them. I just read a minute ago seeing that Christ ever maketh intercession for those that He died for. Look at verse 28. And Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me. I pray Thee and strengthen me. I pray Thee only this once, O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Now the Lord Jesus had two eyes that His enemies endeavored to put out. His Father and the Spirit. But Christ avenges, avenges them against these murderers. And I think that's what we have a picture of there. Now I'm out of time, but I, I want to close with the thought of these two pillars. In verse 29, And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood and on which it was borne up, of the one with his right hand and the other with his left. If you remember, David desired to build the temple of God, but he was a man of war and God said, no, you can't build the temple. You're a man of war. And Solomon, his son, was given the privilege. And this temple was built upon two pillars. They pictured the church being built on two pillars. Those, that, those pillars being the pillars and the grounds of the truth which cannot be taken down. You see it's on 
truth that the church of God stands. And just as the gates of hell cannot prevail against Christ, the rock upon which the church is built, the truth is the pillars and Christ is the foundation of the church. Solomon named those two pillars. He named one Jachin, and that means he will establish. And he named the other pillar Boaz, which means it is in it is strength. <laughs> the church of God, Christ will establish in his strength. Now, in contrast, the two pillars of the temple of Dagon re represent just the opposite. How do I know that? Because false religion is always the direct opposite of the truth. You can find that so many, so clearly in the scriptures. I mean, you take the truth and the counterfeit or the false gospel or the false truth against the just is just the opposite of, of that. False religions the opposite. In the temple of Dagon, the work's not established. It's not finished. There's still a work to be done. We've got to do our part. We've got to say a prayer. We've got to make a decision. We've got to walk an aisle. Got to do something. What must I do to be saved? It can't be if it's all done for me. It can't be that it's established and finished in the strength of another. What about me? What can I do? To be saved. We've got to do our part. But the pillar Jacob says, it's established. It's finished. The pillar of Boaz says, it's finished in the strength of Christ alone. And all God requires for the building of His temple and His church is done by the strength and the finished and established work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, salvation is not Dagon. <laughs> Salvations are the Lord. Salvation is not part man and part fish, and salvation is certainly not part God and part man. It's not an evolutionary process. Salvation is of the Lord, period. Every other pillar that man endeavors to build his salvation upon Samson's going to pull it down. That's right. That's what, our, that's what Christ, our strong man, did. He pulled it all down. Any other work that we endeavor to build upon of our own, He tears down. Again, verse 29, And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood and on which it was borne up of the one with his right hand and the other with his left, I, I think immediately of the Lord Jesus with his arms outstretched on the cross. One on the left and one on the right. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might. And the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. Now that's the gospel. 
of what Christ has done for His people. Okay, thank you.